I'm Aaron Hinkin. This is the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. Hey, this is Beth Sharing. My question is, why is it that Baltimore City residents pay more for water than Baltimore County residents? When, in fact, the water comes from the same source, and that source is owned by the city, even though it's located in the county. Beth, you say the city owns the water that the county uses. That's the way I understand it, that the reservoirs that the water comes from are Baltimore City-owned. And even though the city owns this water, the county pays lower water bills? Well, you know what? That's what we'll find out. I think so. Are you a city resident, Beth, or a county resident? I'm a city resident, and I know that we've had, I think, three increases in the past three years. This is a crazy question you've asked, Beth. Uh, What is your theory? Any guess as to the answer to this puzzle? My guess is uh, that it goes back in time and has to do with our ancient infrastructure and um, maybe what the city-county lines or relationships looked like long ago. All right, Beth, I'm going to see what I can figure out for you. Thanks. We are going to get a couple of different perspectives on Beth's question this episode, and we'll start with a phone call to one of the folks who manages Baltimore's drinking water system. I am Matthew Garbark. I am the deputy director for Baltimore City's Department of Public Works. Mr. Garbark, if we're going to answer this listener's question, we need to start with a little history lesson, I think. How is it that the county gets its drinking water from the city, but that water, which is owned by the city, comes from the county? Yes, it is a very, very good question. We have to go back about a century, uh, if not even more. A lot of it is tied directly to the Great Fire of Baltimore in 1904, when one of the issues was a lack of a consistent and adequate water supply. A lot of the engineers, as well as city leaders, at the time right after that um, got together and wanted to build a world-class water system and one of the ways to do it was to make a large abundant reservoirs and at the time the city of baltimore went to baltimore county and actually bought the land so the city bought land in the county and in state law it says that baltimore city owns operates uh, the water system and must sell to baltimore county at cost, the water that is generated. Got it. So I'm looking at a little history timeline here. It looks like the city purchased land and built a dam across the Gunpowder River. They created Lock Raven Reservoir in uh, 1881. That holds 23 billion gallons of fresh water today. Then 1932, they built Pretty Boy Reservoir. That's 19 billion gallons of fresh water today. And then 1951, they put a dam across the Patapsco River and created Liberty Reservoir. That's 43 billion gallons of fresh water. Uh, Correct, yes. Okay. So, all right. Well, that brings us to this question, right? Let me put it to you. Say you've got a city resident and a county resident, and say they both used 100 gallons of water, exactly the same amount. You look at that city resident's bill, and it's going to be higher than the county resident's bill. How in the world can that be? So there's three main pieces to that. First of all, the city only bills the county for water. So we do not bill them for wastewater or sewer or for stormwater. Those two bills are added onto a city residence bill, sewer and stormwater. The second piece is that 
the city residents, we add in their bill the operating costs as well as the capital costs for the entire system. The county pays separately from the bills. They pay us directly for all of the larger projects and the capital costs. And the third piece is the needs of the city are different than the needs of the county. We have older infrastructure. We have more water mains, some of which are over a century, almost a century and a half years old. The county system tends to be newer. They have newer mains. They don't have nearly as um, many issues in terms of some of the water main breaks, et cetera. So the individual jurisdictions bill based on the needs of that jurisdiction as well. So that is a solid answer to this specific question. But this question kind of opens out onto this important conversation about the nature of this long and arcane relationship between the city and the county, right, as pertains to drinking water resources and infrastructure. Let me ask you, does the city enjoy its role as the water provider for the county? I mean, you say the laws say you can't the city can't turn a profit doing this. It can only break even. I mean, kind of what's in it for us? Well, the the city values this. It is a world-renowned, world-class water system. City does pride itself on the quality of its water um, and on having the system. It is, as you note, arcane. We are one of, if not the most unique in terms of its governance structure and how we are a city that sells water to a county based on reservoirs that are in the county. Um, So it is an arcane system. And, you know, writing down that the county pays for what they owe and the city pays for what we owe is very simple. But when you actually go to tally all that up, it can get extremely complicated. Yeah, let me ask you, like, uh, what kind of a customer is the county? Do they pay what they owe? Do they pay on time? You guys have something called a, a CAM, a cost allocation agreement, and you get together every year to kind of true up and uh, get the county to or tell the county what it owes. Uh, does that does that work out? It has worked. Um, it is working very well now. I will say that there have been some questions in prior years when some of the accounting and some of the billing systems were still old and not as new or upgraded. But this past year, as well as last year, we have gotten, it's called a true up where we satisfy all of the operating costs. And that does seem to work well, but it is a strange and, and somewhat arcane system. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Mr. Garbark, about, uh, I guess we'll rewind to the end of 2020. The city and the county both kind of got called out on the carpet at the same time by their combined offices of inspector general for like losing potentially millions of dollars in water revenue due to infrastructure problems and not being able to properly communicate with each other, the city and the county about it. What was at the core of that problem? And and what have you guys been able to do to solve that? Sure. Um, We've gone through, we are currently going through um, a project to really make sure our meters are connecting to the system. A lot of what we found was not the meter. It was the transmission of the um, electronic readings to our devices. And all that that really required to fix was getting a new transmitter. And that data was all collected there. The bigger issue is the age of the system itself uh, leads to a, a plethora of water main breaks as well as leaks and other things. And that is something that we are aggressively trying to address by um, proactively 
uh, replacing water mains. We are looking at doing 15 miles of water mains every year so that we can improve those and tighten up our, our system because we know that that's water that we should be retaining. And you have to get uh, enough budget money to do that, I'm sure. Has the city got the financial wherewithal to like properly manage its water infrastructure and the billing responsibilities? That that OIG report said at one point that like the meter shop was down to like 11 employees and one truck because former mayor Jack Young had reallocated resources and laid off workers. Mm-hmm. So um, that plan never did go through. Okay. Meter shop has been retained. Um, we are separate from city operating budget. We have um, a 100% of the utilities and the utility as in the water, wastewater, and stormwater um, functions can only come from ratepayers. We cannot legally accept any general fund money. So we have to operate at a balanced budget and we have to generate 100% of our operating and capital costs from our ratepayers. So Every dollar that we spend comes directly from those meters in the ground, which is why it's, it's so important that we get them working. They are, they are our cash registers. I understand that uh, the county has floated the idea of creating a regional water authority to take control and overhaul the whole drinking water system for the city and county and the billing system. Is that something that the city would be on board with? Like, what are the pros and cons of that scenario? Well, getting back to what I said earlier about sort of the overall governance structure and, and how far back it goes and the tradition and all of that, that something, any discussion of that would really need to require some broad input that's, that would likely be a, a mayoral and or um, administration and city council discussion and would also need to be discussed at the state level. So... I don't think um, we really have a, a, a statement on that or, or something, you know, a position on that at, at this time. You think about how far back this arrangement goes between the city and the county, and I'm sure when it was first made, the amount of water that was being required to be distributed to the county was minuscule compared to the population of the city. And so I'm sure it seemed like no big deal for the city to just tack on a couple extra mains and take care of this wider metropolitan area. But then fast forward 100 years and the county is consuming as much, if not more, water than the city. I mean, I guess it's just a testament to how things change and fortunes change over the course of a century. Absolutely. When, when the system was created, we were probably looking at six to one, maybe, in terms of population growth versus uh, from the city to the county. It's now been completely inverted. The county has close to seven, eight hundred thousand residents. We have about six hundred thousand. So they are now consuming more water than Baltimore City is. They are our largest customer. Matthew Garbark, Deputy Director of the Baltimore City Department of Public Works. After the break, we're going to look more at that prospect of a regional water authority and some of the political nuances in the power balance between the city and the county. It's the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. More in a moment. My name is Rihanna Eckel, and I have been organizing with Food and Water Watch and the Baltimore Right to Water Coalition 
to ensure that everyone in Baltimore has access to safe, affordable public water um, since 2016. So um, um, almost six years. The Baltimore City uh, water system and billing system is far from perfect. And on top of its own problems with its own residents, the city is also responsible for providing water to the surrounding Baltimore County area. Our listener this week for the episode asked a question about that relationship between the city and the county as pertains to drinking water. But this question really opens out onto a larger conversation about politics and power. Let me ask you, Rihanna, to talk about how this drinking water setup with the city as provider and then this extra county area as customer can kind of tweak the power dynamic between these political entities. So, right, the city provides the water to the county and the rates have been negotiated through this pretty antiquated agreement between the city and the county um, that only the mayor can renegotiate. Um, but that seems to be a touchy subject politically um, when it comes to renegotiating that, that rate agreement. And so... I You're referring, by the way, to an agreement that was created, I think, in 1972, 49 years ago. Yes, exactly. And so generally, folks in the city think that folks in the county pay much less for the, for the water bills. And they end up paying about the same, um, as Director Garbark explained. But I think, you know, it's a really outdated calculation that they use. And I think there's a case to be made that folks in the county should actually be paying more for their water bills, at least when it comes to, like, the charges for water on a per capita basis compared to folks in the city. Um, It's generally a trend that, you know, in less dense areas that water bills would be higher because it takes more infrastructure to get between, you know, the single-family homes in the county that have yards, yards. there's more pipe there just than there is between the um, rural homes in Baltimore City. So there's a case to be made that folks in the county should actually be paying more because there's a higher cost for repair um, in the county because there's just, you know, wider, wider space, more space between infrastructure. Um, and then the county has an enormous upper hand in this situation, and they frequently have this straight out not the city. Um, really? So, if you, yeah, a few years ago, um, they didn't pay the city over $23 million. Oh. Yeah, and there's really no, like, there's no enforcement mechanism for that. This is all kind of a good faith agreement, but it's really not in good faith if the county is just not paying twenty over $25 million, say. You know, I asked I asked Director Garbark what kind of a customer the county was, and he didn't mention anything about that. Maybe he was being diplomatic. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, it's really interesting because a large part of why our water system is in crisis is just because there's been a huge cut of federal funds. Um, So federal funding for our water systems has been slashed over 82% since it peaked in the late 70s. And since DPW is an enterprise fund, that means it can only raise um, revenue through rates from customers. So as that um, money has been cut from the federal government, the city has just had to turn to rate increases after rate increase um, to raise the revenue. And it got us in this kind of like trying to catch up because the infrastructure is crumbling at the same time. Rihanna, talk to me about this political push to 
create a regional water authority that could step in and do the job of maintaining the drinking water infrastructure and sending out the bills to customers. Who's pushing for this to happen, and how would that change the picture? Primarily, the county is pushing for a regional water authority. The water system is one of Baltimore's biggest assets. Um, Even though it is not always perfectly functioning, it is a huge asset for the city, and we have a lot of control over it. Generally, with regionalization, it creates an appointed board that would make all of the decisions. Right now, um, we do have influence over the city council, influence over the mayor. The mayor controls DPW. The council can legislate DPW. That's how we were able to pass the Water Accountability and Equity Act. That's how we were able to pass the charter amendment to ban water privatization. There are real oversights, and there's power that Baltimoreans have to uh, demand that this system work better for us. But when you turn to regionalization, if there's an appointed board, they don't have the same accountability to voters. And we've seen examples of this in a similar city in Detroit where there's a predominantly black urban area and then the county is predominantly white and wealthier. They actually pushed for a regional water authority and Detroit ended up losing just like a lot of power over the water system, and that led to um, mass water shutoffs in the city. And they've been working to pass a uh, similar water affordability program to the one that we're about to establish in Baltimore for over, I think, 12 or 13 years now, and they haven't been able to do it because the regional authority, that like board, is the one that would have to implement it. And they're appointed. They don't have any pressure points. They're not up for re-election. They don't need to appease um, constituents in the same way. And it really also opens the door to water privatization because, again, you're just taking the control from a larger body and concentrating that into a smaller pool. And that can just open the door for contracts and different forms of privatization, which you know would go against the will of the people. Baltimore passed the Charter Amendment to ban water privatization by 77%. The county would love to turn DPW into a regional authority, But ultimately, I think this is an issue of racial justice because that would negatively impact Black Baltimoreans. And these are the communities that are disproportionately impacted by high water rates and by all of the issues that we've seen in our water system. So it would really only exacerbate existing problems and and probably deepen racial inequities within our city when it comes to water injustice. Given what you said there, I guess it doesn't help that Baltimore is an easy target for water billing complaints right now. Is Baltimore City in a viable position to defend its water resources legitimately from a regional water authority? You know, I think this is really a question of political will. Um, Turning the, the water system into a regional authority would require action in Annapolis, which I could only see happening if the mayor were in support, and of course, like the Baltimore City delegation were in support of regionalizing, I think Mayor Scott has been a strong voice against water privatization. He's been a really strong voice for keeping assets. Um, I think Mayor Scott understands that it's not just like the water system is bad, so we should cede control and like let someone else solve the problem, right? The real solution is keeping it in our hands and keeping the authority that we have over the water system and working to make it better because ultimately regionalization is just not not the answer. So I am cautiously optimistic that that is off the table for many of our representatives who understand 
the asset that the water system is and don't want to cede to the county. Again, that's Rihanna Eckel with Food and Water Watch. We're going to turn our attention back to our listener now who's on the phone and ask this week's question. Beth, who knew your question was going to turn into such a far-reaching discussion about politics and power? What, what are you left yep. thinking here at, at the end of this episode? Well, I found it very informative, but not particularly satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> I accept that. Do you feel like you have any kind of better understanding now about the difference between city and county water bills? I think I do. There are a few things that I could see people wanting to change. Uh, I thought it was interesting that the city can only use water meter funds, whereas the county is not limited in that way. Um, For wastewater and sewage, they can, I guess, use general funds. Um, It seems like something the city should look at. What do you think about this uh, specter of a regional water authority? It's, I had no idea that that was uh, such a hot political topic. Uh, neither did I. Um, it seems like it might be a little problematic, as one of your experts explained, when you have a bunch of people who don't need to answer to voters. I guess the potential for things going wrong is higher. Do you feel any better at the end of this segment about how much you have to pay for water? <laughs> No, of course not. (laughs) Would anyone? (laughs) I didn't expect so, but uh, Beth Shearing, I want to thank you for an excellent question. I learned a lot. So did I. Thank you. Okay, before we wrap up, I do want to give you an update on our last episode, the one about the Baltimore Recycling Program, starting January 18th, 2022. DPW is making the move to bi-weekly recycling collections. So that means pickups are now only once every other week. The DPW says, quote, This modified recycling collection schedule will remain in effect until further notice. Weekly trash collections will not be impacted by the new recycling schedule. On another note, I got a really cool email from a listener who heard last week's episode. He writes, Hello, Aaron. Great first 2022 episode reminds me of my 1970s Baltimore DPW days. I was a senior planner on a demonstration project to recycle newsprint. We lobbied to dedicate a separate truck to collect the newsprint on a specific collection route to demonstrate its viability. And we negotiated with a company called Garden State Paper. They had a Virginia processing facility to purchase the newsprint. That was 1976. Regards, Michael Seavers, Portland, Oregon. So there you have it. This guy was like a pioneer of recycling in Baltimore. Uh, And I got back in touch with him to hear more about it. And he agreed to join us for a few minutes on the phone here uh, from the West Coast, where he lives now. Michael, good to have you with us. You bet, Aaron. Good to be with you. So uh, you left Baltimore for Portland, huh? How's life out there? Life is good. Uh, We left Baltimore, got married in 78, left in 79, landed in Portland in 81, so it's been over 40 years. Well, I'm glad to know you're still uh, keeping in touch with what's going on in the city. I was pleasantly surprised to discover that you're listening to us uh, all the way on the other coast, so thanks for tuning in for that. Um, You're welcome. And I gotta ask you now, you were working in the Baltimore Department of Public Works. The recycling program was non-existent back at this time, 1976. And you came up with this wild idea to recycle newspapers. Tell me that story. Well, it was uh, not exactly a, a wild idea. 
George Winfield and I had been talking about a plan to literally just discuss the collection of newsprint with uh, guys who were running what was then the sanitation division within Public Works. And we just started talking about a simple recycling idea, which wasn't new around the nation, but might have been new to Baltimore in the sense of just dedicating a truck solely for the idea of collecting newsprint and then shipping it to a market, a processing facility, and literally being paid for that newsprint. So how did it pan out? Did you did you get residents on board? Did this turn into a lasting program? Well, eventually I think it did. Uh, I remember it as being a fun discussion and struggle to get the guys we purported to to agree to give this a try, and they did. And I think it struggled for a while. The city was doing other things in terms of waste recovery, and like all things, there were budget constraints. Uh, I think, really, I left Public Works in 1979, and I think after that, things began to pick up speed as Mayor Schaefer won a second or third term. Things really began to change in a good way. You uh, have been around long enough to like basically get to witness the entire arc of uh, our nation's chapter of recycling history. It must have been an interesting experience for you to listen to last week's episode and hear where we're at now with single stream recycling and uh, the uh, materials recovery uh, facility that they go to and just sort of where we're at now compared to 76. Yeah, it's a good point. I was one of the organizers for the original Earth Day in 1970 when I was an undergrad at Wisconsin in Madison, and then went on to a chunk of time in solid waste and worked for waste management in the late 1980s and 1990. And in those days, the idea of a MRF, a material recovery facility, was relatively new, and the idea of processing materials and then recovering them was well underway in a lot of places around the country, uh, and obviously things have changed in those 35 and 40 years. Michael Sievers, uh, what a cool story you've brought to us, and uh, what a nice surprise that, that you heard the podcast out there in Oregon and took the time to be in touch. I love it when listeners reach out and help build on to these stories that we share on the, on the show. I want to thank you for being in touch, and uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, Aaron. And listeners, you know, you can always email with your reactions to the show at curiosity at wypr.org. And by the way, if you've got a question of your own that you want me to look into, there is an easy way to get that on my radar. Just go to wypr.org slash curiosity. There is a quick and easy form there where you can type your question in and put me to work. You can see other listeners' questions there, too, and you can vote on uh, what question you think I should answer next. The website again, wypr.org slash curiosity. Okay, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. I'm Aaron Henkin. Thanks for listening. Stay curious, and we'll do it again next week. The Maryland Curiosity Bureau is made possible with grant support from the Peel Center for Baltimore History and Architecture. Online at thepeelcenter.org.